I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 1 through 3. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Let's begin today with an introduction to the book of Acts. Acts was written by Luke as a continuation of his gospel, the Gospel of Luke. While addressed to an unknown Christian named Theophilus, what it is is a history of the early church after the ascension of Jesus. The book of Acts is inspired by the Holy Spirit to be an accurate account of the activities of the early church. So the question is, can it be regarded as more than that? I mean, to what extent should we adopt the book of Acts as a doctrinal book? In other words, are the words and events found in Acts to be heeded and emulated as absolute doctrine without further validation from the epistles of the New Testament? To answer that question, let's analyze it in the light of what we understand about the Old Testament. For example, 2 Samuel is a God-inspired account of David's life. However, it's not an endorsement of all David's activities as those that should be emulated or really even necessarily respected. We understand that 2 Samuel is an accurate account of a man, David, of whom it is said in 1 Kings 14.8, who followed me, God, with all his heart. So what about the central characters of the book of Acts? I mean, can we assume that each action by James, Peter, Paul, and the other apostles was infallible? I mean, just because it was recorded in the book of Acts? Well, we don't assume that about David in 2 Samuel, but we do acknowledge that the inspiration of Scripture guarantees that it is an accurate record of David's actions, good or bad. Well, that has to be done with the book of Acts also. That has to be the case. The characters in the book of Acts were fallible men who were continuing the ministry commissioned by Jesus himself. Not everything they did and said as recorded in the book of Acts is necessarily to be adopted as doctrinal practice. Well, not any more than everything David did and said is to be so regarded. As a matter of fact, Paul speaks of Peter in Galatians chapter 2.11 and says this, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Paul shows us that Peter had faults. So here's what we do with the Acts of the Apostles. The epistles, being the letters of the New Testament to believers, those were inspired by the Holy Spirit to be doctrinal for us. We see the doctrine in these letters, and then we get an insight into the historical setting in which these doctrines were being practiced by seeing these practices in the book of Acts. For example, we see the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but we need Acts chapter 6 to see the necessity that prompted their selection. I was once a member of a very small congregation that believed that every church, regardless of size, should have exactly seven deacons, no more, no less. This number had been adopted because this was the number chosen in Acts chapter 6. Now, the book of Acts was just not meant to be used in that fashion. We may look at actions by the notable characters of this book and weigh them against the doctrinal content of the epistles of the New Testament, and we do that in order to determine how we'll apply those doctrinal principles. 
It's a dangerous precedent to use the book of Acts as a one-stop doctrinal book. Now let's get into the first chapter. What happened for the six weeks after the resurrection? We will be reading Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, and he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven." The former account that we see in verse 1, that's a reference to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus taught his disciples for 40 days, we see in verse 3. That was after his resurrection, prior to his ascension in verses 9 through 11. Luke includes a bit of overlap with his Gospel account of Luke chapter 24, verses 49 to 51. That's where he reported the ascension of Jesus in his Gospel. In that account, Luke gives the last-minute instructions from Jesus prior to his resurrection when he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Luke recaps those instructions again here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, when it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, You have heard from me. It's interesting to note that the disciples in verse 6 once again seek the answer to the most frequently pondered question of Jesus' entire ministry, and that's this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now keep in mind who Jesus Christ is. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Messiah, the word Christ, means anointed one. It's the New Testament word, the transliteration, Christ is, of Christos, the Greek word, which is the Greek word for Mashiach, Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the one who is to rule the earth from Jerusalem upon the restored throne of David. Now, they want to know if Jesus plans to initiate this kingdom and rule right now. Well, the answer is not right now. Then, as his last words before his final first Advent ascension, he commissions his disciples in verse 8 with instructions to take his message worldwide. These instructions coincide with those we commonly refer to as the Great Commission found in Matthew 28:16-20, Mark 16:15-20, and Luke chapter 24 verses 44 to 53. 
These instructions are in contrast to the near-exclusive outreach to Jews only during the earthly ministry of Jesus. The ability to effectively proclaim this message will be facilitated by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be made manifest in Acts chapter 2 a few days later. Finally, in verses 9 through 11, we see the ascension with the promised return by presumably two angels. Their comments regarding the ascension of Jesus are quite precise in verse 11. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come again in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This last meeting with Jesus' disciples takes place on Mount Olivet. Therefore, based upon verses 9 through 11, it's to be assumed that these comments mean that Jesus' return will be the following. It would be personal, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. That verse says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And then we see that it will be visible. The Battle of Armageddon is recorded in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then he'll be coming to the Mount of Olives, also known as Mount Olivet, and that's according to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. Incidentally, if you wondered where the crucifixion became known as the Passion of Christ, well, here it is in verse 3 in the King James Version. That verse says in the King James Version, "...to whom also he showed himself alive after his Passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." The Greek word pasko there, translated passion, is used 42 times in the New Testament, but it's only translated passion that one time in the, in the King James Version. It's almost always translated suffer as it is in the New King James Version in this verse. Now, what took place between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? I've provided a chart there to show you uh, the days and all the way down from Nisan 14, which was Thursday, all the way down through day 52, the festival of Pentecost, the formal beginning of the Jerusalem church. And you can look at that chart and recognize what happened and when it happened. So let's make special mention of Acts chapter 1, verse 8 here before we move on. It seems that it's important motivation for the actions of the remainder of the book of Acts. That verse says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's unlikely that the thousands of Jews who received Christ on the day of Pentecost had any idea that they'd be sharing their newfound faith in Christ with Gentiles. However, the command of Christ here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is quite clear. Samaritans and then Gentiles, where it says to the end of the earth. This commission unfolds quickly in the book of Acts. The Samaritans are evangelized in Acts chapter 8. And the Gentiles, first of all, the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Afterward, Paul goes everywhere preaching to anyone who will listen, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. In verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1, we see what the apostles did while they were waiting. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room, where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names were about a hundred and twenty, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Demah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, it's ten days before the Feast of Pentecost at this point in time, and the disciples have been told in verse 4 not to leave Jerusalem, but they were told by Jesus to wait for the promise of the Father. Luke records Jesus' words like this in Luke twenty-four forty-nine: Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. While in the upper room, Peter takes charge. He decides to replace the fallen Judas Iscariot rather than just wait as they were instructed to do. In verses 21 and 22, Peter, through deductive reasoning, outlines the qualifications for replacement apostle as follows. He must be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry from John's baptism to the ascension, including the resurrection. Then they cast lots to choose between two candidates who meet this criteria. Matthias, he wins the lottery here. That's right, it wasn't a vote to elect, it was more like throwing dice. That's what casting lots means. Now, by the way, if you wonder about the practice of casting lots, then look at my notes on Proverbs chapter 16, and there I have an article with regard to the process of casting lots, how it worked and what it meant. Now, in the Old Testament, they depended upon God to direct the outcome of casting lots. Incidentally, if the book of Acts is to be used as a doctrinal book on its own, and uh, we talked about that in the introduction to the book of Acts, Shouldn't Christians be making important decisions today based upon the use of a lottery? After Peter quotes David as his justification in Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8, and he uses that for doing so, they now have their twelfth apostle. When you take a look at those two psalms, you must admit that Peter used a lot of latitude in selecting those two verses as justification for his actions. Now, here's the problem, though. Paul claimed to be an apostle. And he uses similar criteria in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, when he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now, does he mean that he should be numbered with the other eleven as the twelfth apostle instead of Matthias? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Here's what Paul says there. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? 
Does it not appear that Paul is comparing his apostleship to that of the original eleven? So, based upon his Damascus Road experience of seeing Jesus there, Paul seems to be indicating that he meets the criteria for Jesus' selected apostleship. Now, for those who would maintain that both Matthias and Paul were apostles by that standard criteria, look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, when he says, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But wait, there's more. We see the new Jerusalem, which is established in Revelation chapter 21, and look at what Revelation 21:14 says. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So who is that twelfth apostle? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? Is it possible that Peter mm, overstepped his authority by selecting a successor to Judas based upon the lottery? Isn't it more likely that the Jesus-selected Paul is actually to be the name written on one of those foundations in the New Jerusalem rather than Matthias? We change directions in Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost now. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven." And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because every one heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Well, of course, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are bigger events, but we're talking church history here. The Feast of Pentecost came each year 50 days after the first Sabbath following the Passover. Therefore, it always fell on a Sunday. As 120 of Jesus' disciples are gathered in a room in Jerusalem on this no-work Jewish holiday, the Holy Spirit is manifested among them in a threefold miracle. Now, the threefold miracle on the day of Pentecost consisted of the mighty rushing wind that filled the room in verse 2, and then fire danced on their heads in verse 3, and then finally, in verses 4 through 12, they spoke in languages familiar to those viewing this experience. By the way, when the people talk about having the Pentecostal experience present in their church services, how many of these three miracles of the day of Pentecost are really present? If you say one, let me remind you that those languages spoken were heard as real languages. Verse 8, they weren't unknown languages. Now, how many? If this discussion interests you, then look at my article, my commentary on 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 for additional perspective regarding the 
practice of speaking in tongues. The miracle of the day of Pentecost facilitated the message which Peter preached, inviting these Jews to receive Christ as Savior. I'm relatively certain that Peter is exercising here an authority which was given to him by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to take the gospel message to Jerusalem. Well, that's been done. And then Samaria, that happens in Acts chapter 8. And then to the uttermost part of the earth, which means the Gentiles, and that happens in Acts chapter 10. On all three occasions, it was Peter who was entrusted to deliver the message of the gospel preceded by miracles. Therefore, it seems logical that the keys of Matthew chapter 16, that those keys are used on these three occasions to open the gospel door to the whole world. In verses 14 through 41, somebody needs to explain what just happened here. And that man, that someone, is Peter, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence, men and brethren. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. Well, Peter can explain the threefold miracle on the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, it's his job to explain it. Now, I'm convinced that this is the authority that had been given to him back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Furthermore, Jesus seemed to have reinforced this authority in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Peter stands up to preach for the sake of the Judeans who were mocking them in verse 13. He starts out by saying, it's too early to be drunk. What a way to start a message. Then he explains the provisions of the new covenant. That's the one that's outlined in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, while not naming that new covenant specifically. He does, however, make reference to Joel chapter 2, verse 28, to explain the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their midst. That verse says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. While that prophecy is not actually to be fulfilled until the days leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation, the internalization of God's Spirit in believers is the aspect of the new covenant that Peter is accentuating here. Peter preaches a powerful message, including proofs that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. He even quotes David from Psalm 1610 in verses 27 and 31 here, and then from Psalm 110, verse 1, in verses 34 and 35 in this passage. Peter pulls no punches in accusing the crowd of thousands who were now listening that they had crucified the Messiah. He says so in verse 36 when he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When Peter gets to the invitation, 3,000 are saved and baptized. It turns out to be a really, really great day at church, and it all happened on a Sunday. As a matter of fact, this event goes down in history as the formal birth of the New Testament church. Peter's invitation to receive Jesus as Savior in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 merits some explanation. Peter says this, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, many today have disregarded the circumstances, and they've just built elaborate extra-scriptural doctrines upon these very words. First of all, some have concluded, without any supporting scripture from the epistles, they've concluded that water baptism is essential as a requirement for one's actual salvation experience. In other words, they conclude that one is not actually saved until after the water baptism. There's no other scripture to support this notion. If you'd like a fuller understanding on this issue of water baptism, then see my notes on Romans chapter 6, verses 1-14. through 14. Now, what about that invitation to repent in that verse? First of all, understand this. Saving faith is saving faith, period. Galatians 2.16 says this, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ." 
that faith of Jesus Christ package includes repentance. Here Peter emphasizes repentance because these aren't your typical non-believers. They're already religious but have rejected Jesus as the Messiah up to this point. So Peter appropriately invites them to repent, the Greek word being metanoeo, meaning to change one's mind or attitude. These Jews were missing an important component in their traditional religious persuasion. That component was the Messiah prophesied in their own scriptures. They weren't just missing Jesus, they had rejected Jesus, turned their backs on Jesus. Now it's time for them to turn around, as in to accept that Jesus really is their long-awaited Messiah. So why did he invite them to be baptized here if not as a condition of salvation? That was undoubtedly a matter of practice. Our modern-day paradigm for an invitation consists of standing in front of our seats while listening to a plea for people to move to the aisle, come down front, and profess Jesus as their Savior. Now, with thousands gathered around, shoulder to shoulder, listening to Peter preach, there were no aisles. There was no place for 3,000 people to stand down front. Therefore, the only practical way to identify with Christ that day was to go ahead and follow Peter down to the river and be baptized by water. That was their way of identifying with Christ on that very occasion. You'll notice that the invitation of Acts chapter 3, verse 19, that we'll read in just a few moments, that didn't include baptism. Peter proclaims that the reception of the Holy Spirit comes at salvation in his invitation, Look at the notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, if you want to know more about the process of being saved. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, down through the end of the chapter, we see that the early Christians shared everything, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, these early believers, they excited about the Lord's working in their midst, Notice verses 46 and 47, they say, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They went to the temple to share daily, as well as from house to house. They were excited about the Christian life. Now notice the practice of these new believers in the aftermath of this Pentecostal experience. We're told in verses 44 and 45 that they sold their possessions and they contributed the proceeds to the Christian community. Then we find in verse 46 that they met together as believers daily at the temple and in one another's homes as well. And then we're told in verse 46 that they shared meals on a daily basis in one another's homes. These new believers were excited about life in Christ. As seen in these verses, their daily living practices were completely absorbed in serving Christ and fellowshipping with those who do. That brings us to Acts chapter 3, where Peter heals a lame man, verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. 
And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses." And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and I know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled." Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren." Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, Peter and John go to the temple where they see the lame man there begging as usual. Peter gets right to the point in verse 6. He says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he does. He goes right into the temple with Peter and John to the amazement of those standing around watching. I feel a message coming on. Peter recognizes an opportunity to preach, and he gets right to the facts in verse 14 when he says, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. If that wasn't clear enough, Peter says to the crowd then, 
in verse 15, that they had killed the prince of life. Whoa, that's some heavy preaching right there. Isn't Peter afraid someone is going to get a little angry at statements like that? Well, no worry, because Peter is empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit. Peter's message, like that of Acts chapter 2, is a historical progression of God's working with Israel to bring the Messiah and salvation to them. The bottom line is the same. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, Peter drives the point home once again. And his point is this. This lame man was healed through faith in this very same Messiah, the one whom you crucified. The invitation of Acts chapter 3, verse 19 requires some explanation. It says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, here Peter is preaching to an audience gathered to the temple. We assume, therefore, that these are practicing Jews gathered there at the hour of prayer, as we saw in verse 1. Again, as on the day of Pentecost, these aren't typical non-believers. They are already religious, but they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah up to this point. So Peter appropriately invites them to repent, the Greek word metanoeo, meaning to change one's mind or attitude, and then he says be converted, epistrepho, meaning to turn around or turn toward. In other words, they were missing an important component in their traditional religious persuasion. That component was the Messiah prophesied in their own scriptures. They weren't just missing Jesus. They had rejected Jesus, turned their backs on Jesus. Now it's time to turn around, meaning repent and be converted, and see that Jesus, after all, is their long-anticipated Messiah. Peter's invitation is not a typical invitation for salvation because These weren't typical people to whom he was speaking. However, the faith of Christ, a concept which is dealt with in my notes exhaustively in the notes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 and verse 20, the faith of Christ is what's needed for salvation here. A component of the faith of Christ is repentance. Incidentally, notice the clear reference in verses 22 and 23 to the prophecy of Moses concerning the Messiah where there he says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter's making a clear reference here to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. That's where Moses prophesies the coming Messiah. Jews in the first century all looked forward to the time when Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 22 would be fulfilled. Peter proclaims to them that this has already happened in the person of Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on that, then look in the topic section of BibleTrack.org for my article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.